Section 5 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Chapter 2, Part 2. 3. Having given an indication of the various stages through which the sonata form passed, we may now speak of the men who developed it. We are here, of course, concerned only with those who cultivated the later, and eventually universal, German type. In the band of musicians gathered about the court of Frederick the Great, we find such pioneers as Joachim Quantz, the king's instructor on the flute, Gottlieb Kahn, whose significance as a composer of symphonies, overtures, concertos, and sonatas is far greater than that of his brother Karl Heinrich, the composer of Der Tod Jesu, and the violinist Franz Benda, who was, however, surpassed in musicianship by his brother Georg, Kapellmeister in Gotha. All of these, and a number of others, constitute the so-called Berlin School, whose most distinguished representative by far was Karl Philipp Emanuel Bach, the most eminent of Johann Sebastian's sons. He has been called, not without reason, the father of the piano sonata, for although Kunau preceded him in applying the form to the instrument, it is he who made it popular, and who definitely fixed its pattern, determined the order of its movements, allegro, andante or adagio, allegro or presto, so familiar to all music lovers. Emmanuel Bach was born in Weimar in 1714. He was sent to Frankfurt to study law but instead established a chorus with himself as its leader. In 1738 he went to Berlin, where two years later we see him playing the accompaniments to old Fritz's flute solos. The royal amateur's accomplishments were of doubtful merit, but Bach stood the strain for twenty-seven years, at the end of which the king abandoned the flute for the sword, and Bach abandoned the king to finish his days in Hamburg as director of church music. But church music was not his métier. His cantatas were pot-boilers. Emmanuel was made of different stuff from his father. He fitted into his time, a polished courtier, more witty than pious, more suave than sincere, more brilliant than deep, but of solid musicianship nonetheless. The technician par excellence, both as composer and executant, a clean-cut formalist, a thorough harmonist, crowned full of racy novelty, though not free from pedantry, and preferring always the galant style of the period. The polite instrument, the harpsichord, was essentially his. The essay on the true manner of playing the clavier, which he wrote in Berlin, is still of value today. His technique was no doubt derived from that of his father, but he introduced a still more advanced method of fingering. His great importance to history, however, lies in his instrumental compositions, comprising no less than 210 solo pieces, piano sonatas, rondos, concertos, trio sonatas of the conventional type, two violins and bass, six string quartets, and the symphonies printed in 1780. These works exercised a dual force, while yielding to the taste of the time, they held the balance to the side of greater harmonic richness and artistic propriety. On the other hand, they played an important part in the further development of the prevailing forms, to a point where they could become free enough and practical enough to deal with the deep emotions. Quote, as yet, people looked on the art as a refined sort of amusement, 
Not until Beethoven had written his music did its possibilities as a vehicle for deep human feeling and experience become evident. End quote. By following fashion, Bach became its leader, and so exercised a widespread influence over his contemporaries and immediate followers. For a few years, says Mr. W. H. Haddo, the fate of music depended upon Emmanuel Bach. Mozart himself, though directly influenced by him only in later life, called him, quote, the father of us all, end quote. Bach may hardly be said to have originated the modern pianistic style, the free, brilliant manner of writing particularly adapted to the requirements of the instrument. Couperin and the astonishing Domenico Scarlatti were before him. Naturally, the instrument which he used was not nearly so resonant or sonorous as the piano of our day, an instrument the strings of which were plucked by quills attached to the key lever, not hit by hammers as the strings of our piano, was of course devoid of all sustaining power. This fact accounts for the infinite number of ornaments, trills, mordants, grace notes, bewildering in their variety with which Bach's sonatas are replete. Despite the technical reason for their existence, we cannot forego the obvious analogy between them and the Rococo style prevalent in the architecture and decorations of the period. Emmanuel Bach's music was as fashionable as that style, and his popularity outlasted it. Strange as it may seem, Bach in the 18th century and beyond always meant Emmanuel. Quite a different sort of man was Emmanuel's elder brother, Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, the favorite son of his father and thought to be the most gifted too but the definition of genius as quote, an infinite capacity for taking pains end quote, would not fit his gifts wilhelm preferred a good time to concentrated labor hence his name is not writ large in history yet his work mostly preserved only in manuscript concertos suites sonatas and fantasias shows more real individuality more innigkeit and at times real passion than does his brother's and moreover something that could never happen to his brother's works happened to one of his it was ascribed to his father and so was published in the bach society's edition of sebastian's works in the examples of his work resurrected by the indefatigable dr riemann we are often surprised by harmonic vagaries and rhythmic ingenuities that recall strongly the older bach the impassioned fancy of that polyphonic giant finds often a faint echo in the rhapsodic wanderings of his eldest son. Friedemann Bach's life was, like his work, rambling, irregular. Born in 1710, he was organist in Dresden from 1733 to 1747, then at Halle, in the church that was Handel's drilling ground under old Zachau. His extravagances cost him his post, and perhaps many another, for he roved restlessly over Germany for the rest of his life, until the broken-down genius of seventy-four, he ended his career in Berlin in 1784. In sharp contrast to the career of the oldest son of Bach stands that of the youngest, Johann Christian, born 1734 in Leipzig, chiefly renowned as an opera composer of the Italian school. He has been called the Milanese Bach, because from 1754 to 1762 he made that Italian city his home and there wrote operas and became a Catholic to qualify as the organist of Milan Cathedral and the London Bach, because there he spent the remaining twenty years of his life, 
a most useful and honourable career. His first London venture was in opera too, but his historic importance does not lie in that field. Symphonies, including one or two orchestras, concertos for piano, and various other instruments, quintets, quartets, trios, sonatas for violin, and numerous piano pieces, which did much to popularize the new instrument, are his real monuments. Trained at first by his brother Emmanuel, he was bound to follow the polite, elegant style of the period, and more so, perhaps, because of his Italian experience. For that reason, his value has been greatly underestimated, but he is nevertheless an important factor in the stylistic reform that prepared the way for the great classics and the upbuilding of German instrumental music. Of his influence upon Mozart and Haydn we shall have more to say anon. That influence was, of course, largely Italian, for Bach followed the Italian pattern in his sonatas. It was he that passed on to Mozart the singing Allegro, which he had brought with him from Italy, and so he may be considered in a measure the communicator of Pergolesi's genius. As the centre of London musical life, Christian Bach exercised a tremendous influence in the formation of popular taste. The subscription concerts which he and another German, Karl Friedrich Abel, 1725-1787, instituted in 1764, were to London what the concerts spirituels were to Paris not only symphonies but cantatas and chamber works of every description were here performed in the manner of our public concerts of to-day and the higher forms of music were thus placed for the first time within the reach of a great number of people after seventeen seventy five these concerts took place in the famous hanover square rooms and were continued until seventeen eighty two in the following year, another series, known as the Professional Concerts, was begun, and since that time the English capital has had an unbroken succession of symphonic concerts. 4. The writer of musical history is confronted at every point with the problem of classification. The men whom we have discussed can, though united by ties of nationality and even family, hardly be considered as of one school. We have taken them as the representatives of the North German musical art, yet, as we are obliged to state, southern influence affected nearly all of them. Similarly, we should find in analyzing the music of the Viennese that a more or less rugged Germanism had entered into it. J. J. Fuchs, 1660-1741, the pioneer of the Viennese school, Georg Röther, father and son, 1656 to 1738 and 1708 to 1772, F. L. Gassmann, 1723 to 1774, Johann Georg Albrecht Berger, 1736 to 1809, Leopold Hoffmann, 1730 to 1772, Georg Christoph Wagenzahl, 1715 to 1777, and Karl Dittos von Dittosdorf, 1739 to 1799, who, with others, are usually reckoned as of that school, are all examples of this Germanism. Indeed, these men assume a historic importance only in the degree to which they absorb the advancing reforms of their northern confrères. All of them are indebted for what merit they possess to the great school of stylistic reformers who, about the year 1750, gathered in the beautiful Rhenish city of Mannheim, and whose leader, Johann Stamitz, was until recently unknown to historians except as an executive musician. 
His reappearance has cleared up many an unexplained phenomenon, and for the first time has placed the entire question of the origins of the classic or Viennese style, the style of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, in its proper light. Much of the merit ascribed to Emmanuel Bach, for instance, in connection with the sonata, and to Haydn in connection with the symphony, belongs rightfully to Stummitz. We may now safely consider the Viennese school, like that of Paris, as an offshoot of the Mannheim school, and shall therefore discuss both as subsidiary to it. The Mannheim reform brought into instrumental music, as we have said, one essentially new idea, the idea of contrast. Contrast is one of the two fundamental principles of musical form. The other is reiteration. Reiteration in its various forms, imitation, transposition, and repetition, is a familiar element in every musical composition. The germination of musical ideas, the logical development of such ideas or motifs into phrases, sentences, sections, and movements, is in practice only a broadening of that principle. All the forms which we have discussed, the aria, the canzona, the toccata, the fugue, and the sonata, owe their being to various methods of applying it. Contrast, the other leading element of form, may be applied technically in several different ways, of which only two interest us here, contrast of key and dynamic contrast. Contrast of key is the chief requisite in the most highly organized forms, such as the fugue and the sonata and as such have been consciously employed for practically two hundred years. But dynamic contrast, the change from loud to soft and vice versa, especially gradual change, which moreover carries with it the broader idea of varying expression, contrast of mood and spirit never entered into instrumental music until the advent of Johann Stamitz. It is this duality of expression that distinguishes the new from the old. This is the outstanding feature of classical music, over all that preceded it. Johann Stamitz was born in Deutschbrot, Bohemia in 1717 and died at Mannheim in 1757. In the course of his forty years he revolutionized instrumental practice and laid the foundations of modern orchestral technique, created a new style of composition which enabled Mozart and Beethoven to give adequate expression to their genius and originated a method of writing which resulted in the abolition of the figured bass when in 1742 Charles VII had himself crowned emperor in Frankfurt, Stamitz first aroused the attention of the assembled nobility as a violin virtuoso. The prince-elector of the Palatinate, Karl Theodor, at once engaged him as court musician. In 1745 he made him his concertmaster and musical director. Within a year or two, Stamitz made the court band into the best orchestra of Europe. Bernie, Leopold Mozart, and others who have left their judgment of it, convince us that it was as good as an orchestra could be, with the limitations imposed by the still imperfect intonation of certain instruments. It was, at any rate, the first orchestra on a modern footing, whose members were artists bent upon artistic interpretation. It is curious to read Leopold Mozart's expression of surprise at finding them, quote, honest, decent people, not given to drink, gambling, and roistering, unquote but such was the reputation musicians as a class enjoyed in those days. We may recall how Jomelli introduced the orchestral crescendo in the Strasbourg opera. That he emulated the Mannheim orchestra rather than set an example for it seems unquestionable, for Stamitz had already been at his work ten years when Jomelli arrived. 
The gradual change from piano to forte, and the sudden change in either direction to indicate a change of mood, not only within single movements, but within phrases and even themes, was bound to lead to important consequences. While fiercely opposed by the pedants among German musicians, the practice found quick acceptance in the large centers where Stamitz's famous Opus I was performed. These six sonatas, or symphonies, quote, ou à trois, ou avec tout l'orchestre, end quote, were brought out in 1751 at the Concert Spirituel under Le Gros. Stamitz's sonatas were performed with drums, trumpets, and horns another symphony with horns and oboes, and another with horns and clarinets, a rare novelty, were brought out in the winter of 1754-55, to 55, with Stamitz himself as conductor. These symphonies were, as a matter of fact, trio sonatas in the conventional form, two violins and figured bass, such as had been produced in a great number since the time of Pergolesi. But there was a difference. The figured bass was a fully participating third part, not depending upon the usual harpsichord interpretation of the harmony. The compositions were in fact true string trios, but they were written for optional orchestral execution, and when so performed, the added wind instruments supplied the harmonic filling. This means, then, the application of the classic sonata form to orchestral music, and virtually the creation of the symphony. While not by a long way parallel with the symphonies of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, these works of Stamitz are nevertheless true symphonies in a classic style, orchestral compositions in sonata form. They have the essential first movement construction. They are free from the fugato style of the earlier orchestral pieces, and instead of the indefinite rambling of passage work, they present the clear thematic phraseology, the germination of ideas characteristic of the form. Their sincere phraseology, says Riemann, their, quote, boldness of conception and the masterly thematic development which became an example in the period that followed, give Stamitz's work lasting value. Haydn and Mozart rest absolutely upon his shoulders, end quote. Following Stamitz's first efforts, there appeared in print a veritable flood of similar works, known in France as Symphonie d'Allemagne, most of them by direct pupils of Stamitz, by F. X. Richter, his associate in Mannheim, by Wagenseil, Töschi, Holzbauer, Filz, and Cannabich, his successor at the Mannheim Pult. Stamitz's own work comprises ten orchestral trios, fifty symphonies, violin concertos, violin solo, and violin piano sonatas, a fair amount for so short a career, that for a long time this highly interesting figure disappeared from the annals of musical history is only less remarkable than the eclipse of Bach's fame for seventy-five years after his death, though in Stamitz's case it was hardly because of slow recognition, for already Bernie had characterized him as a great genius. Arteaga, in 1785, called him the Rubens among composers, and Gerbert, 1792, said that, quote, his divine talent placed him far above his contemporaries, end quote. 5. From these contemporaries we shall select only a few as essential links in the chain of development. Three men stand out as intermediaries between Stamitz and the Haydn-Mozart epoch, Johann Schobert, chiefly in the field of piano music, Luigi Baccarini, especially for stringed chamber music, and Karl Dittos von Dittosdorf for the symphony. 
These signalize the cosmopolization of the new art, representing, as it were, its French, Italian, and South German outposts. Schobert is especially important because of the influence which he and his colleague Eckhart exercised upon Mozart at a very early age. These two men were the two favorite pianists of Paris salons about the middle of the century. Chamber music with piano obbligato found in Schobert one of its first exponents. A composer of agreeable originality, solid in musicianship, and an unequivocal follower of the Mannheim School, he must be recognized as a valiant supporter of the German sonata, as opposed to its lighter Italian sister, though French characteristics are not by any means lacking in his work. As one in whom these characteristics predominate, we should mention François-Joseph Gossic, familiar to us as the writer of Opéra Comique, but also important as a composer of trio sonatas of the usual kind, some for orchestral performance like those of Stamitz, ad lib, and several real symphonies, all of which are clearly influenced in manner by Stamitz and the Mannheimers. Gossick was, in a way, the centre of Paris musical life, for he conducted successively the private concerts given under the patronage of La Poupe Lénière, those of Prince Contini in Chantilly, the Concert des Amateurs, which he founded in 1770, and eventually the Concert Spirituel organised by him. The Mercure de France, in an article on Rameau's Castor et Pollux, calls Gossick France's representative musician among the pioneers of the new style. Contrasting his work with Rameau's, the critic refers to the latter as being d'une teneur, of one tenor, while Gossick's is full of nuance and contrast. This slight digression will dispose of the Paris school for the present, we shall now proceed to the chief Italian representative of Mannheim principles. In placing Boccherini before Haydn in our account of the string quartet, we may lay ourselves open to criticism, for Haydn is universally considered the originator of that form. But, as in almost every case, the fixing of a new form cannot be ascribed to the efforts of a single man. Although Haydn's priority seems established, Boccherini may more aptly be taken as the starting point, for while Haydn represents a more advanced state of development, Boccherini at the outset displays a far more finished routine. In principle, the string quartet has existed since the 16th century, when madrigals and frottoli, written in vocal polyphony and for vocal execution, were adapted to instruments. The greater part of the polyphonic works of the 15th and 16th centuries was written in four parts, and so were the German Lieder, French chansons, and Italian canzonette, as well as the dance pieces of the 16th and 17th centuries. In instrumental music, four-part writing has never been superseded, despite the quondam preference for many voices, and the 150 years' reign of figured bass but a strictly four-part execution was adhered to less and less as orchestral scoring came more and more into vogue for suite and sonata. Hence the string quartet, when it reappeared, was as much of a novelty in its way as the accompanied solo song seemed to be in 1600. Quartetti, sonate a quattro, and sinfonia a quattro are indeed common titles in the early 17th century, but their character is distinctly different from our chamber music. They are orchestral, depending on harmonic thickening and massed chordal effects, 
while the peculiar charm of the string quartet depends on purity and integrity of line in every part, and while at the same time each part is at all times necessary to the harmonic texture. Thus the string quartet represents a more perfect fusion of the polyphonic and harmonic ideals than any other type. The exact point of division between orchestral and true quartets cannot, of course, be determined, though the distinction becomes evident in works of Stamitz and Gossick, when in one opus we find trios or quartets, some of which are expressly determined for orchestral treatment, while others are not. It is Stamitz's reform again which, quote, loosened the tongue of subjective expression, end quote, and by turning away from fugal treatment, prepared the way for the true string quartet. Boccherini's first quartets are still in reality symphonies, and in Haydn's early works, too, the distinction between the two is not clear. Boccherini's, however, are so surprisingly full of new forms of figuration, so sophisticated in dynamic nuances, and so strikingly modern in style, that without the previous appearance of Stamitz, Boccherini would have to be considered a true pioneer. Luigi Boccherini was born in 1743 in Lucca. After appearing in Paris as cellist, he was made court virtuoso to Luiz, Infanta of Spain, and accordingly he settled in Madrid. Frederick William II of Prussia acknowledged the dedication of a work by conferring the title of court composer on Boccherini, who then continued to write much for the king and was rewarded generously, like Haydn and Mozart after him. The death of his royal patron in 1797 and the loss of his Spanish post reduced the composer to poverty at an old age. He died 1805. He has to his credit no less than 91 string quartets, 125 string quintets, 54 string trios, and a host of other works, including 20 symphonies, also cantatas and oratorios. Today he's neglected perhaps unjustly, but in this he shares the fate of all the musicians of his period who abandoned themselves to the lighter, more elegant genre of composition. The relation of Karl Ditters von Dittersdorf to the Mannheim school is in the symphonic field relatively the same as that of Schobert in regard to the piano, and Boccherini in connection with the string quartet. Again, we must guard against the criticism of detracting from the glory of Haydn, both Haydn and Dittelsdorf were pioneers in developing the symphony according to the Mannheim principles, but of course Haydn, in his later works, represents a more advanced stage and will therefore more properly receive full treatment in the next chapter. Ditters probably composed his first orchestral works between 1761 and 1765, while Kapellmeister to the Bishop of Großwartein in Hungary, where he succeeded Michael Haydn, of whom presently, though Joseph Haydn's first symphony in D major had already appeared in 1759, it had as yet none of the earmarks of the new style. Ditters was doubtless more broadly educated than most musicians of his time, and probably in touch with the latest developments, a fact borne out by his works, which, however, show no material advance over his models. These works include notably twelve orchestral symphonies on Ovid's Metamorphoses, besides about one hundred others and innumerable pieces of chamber music, many of the lighter social genre, and several oratorios, masses, and cantatas.
His comic operas have a special significance and will be mentioned in another connection. Ditters was more fortunate in honours than material gain. Both the Order of the Golden Spur, which seems to have been a coveted badge of greatness, and the patent of nobility came to him. But after the death of his last patron, the Prince Bishop of Breslau, he was forced to seek the shelter of a friendly roof, the country estate of Ignaz von Stilfried in Bohemia, where he died in 1799. His Vienna colleague, Georg Christian Wagenseil, we may dismiss with a few words, for though one of the most fashionable composers of his time, his compositions have hardly any historic interest. They lack real individuality. But he was in the line of development under the Mannheim influence, and he did for the piano concerto what Schubert did for the sonata, applied to it the newly crystallized sonata form. His concertos were much in vogue. Little Mozart had them in his prodigy's repertoire, and no doubt they left at least a trace of their influence on his wonderfully absorbent mind. Wagenseil enjoyed a favorite existence at court, as teacher of the Empress Maria Theresa and the imperial princesses, with the rank of imperial court composer. The Latin titles on his publications seem to reflect his somewhat pompous personality. Pieces in various forms for keyboard predominate but the usual quota of string music, church music, and some symphonies are in evidence. His sixteen operas are a mere trifle in comparison with the productivity of the period. Before closing our review of the minor men of the period, which had its climax in the practically simultaneous appearance of Haydn and Mozart, we must take at least passing notice of two men, the brother of one and the father of the other, who, by virtue of this close connection, could not fail to exercise a very direct influence upon their greater relatives. By a peculiar coincidence, these two had one identical scene of action, the archiepiscopal court of Salzburg, that alpine fastness hemmed in by the mountains of Tyrol, Styria, and Bohemia. Hither Leopold Mozart had come from Augsburg, where he was born in 1719, to study law at the university but he soon entered the employ of the Count of Turm, canon of the cathedral, as secretary, and subsequently that of the Prince Archbishop as court musician, and here he ended his days at the same court, but under another master of a far different sort. Johann Michael Haydn became his confrère, or rather his superior, in 1762, having secured the place of archiepiscopal Kapellmeister, left vacant by the death of the venerable Eberlin. Before this, he had held a similar but less important post at Grosswardein, Hungary, as predecessor to Ditters, and, like his slightly older brother, Josef, had begun his career as chorister in St. Stephen's in Vienna. Salzburg had always been one of the foremost cities of Europe in its patronage of musical art. Not only the reigning prelates, but people of every situation cultivated it. At this time it held many musicians of talent, and its court concerts, as well as the elaborate musical services at the cathedral and the abbey of St. Peter's, the oratorios and the occasional performances under university auspices, contributed to the creation of a real musical atmosphere, the old Archbishop Sigismund, 
whose death came only too soon, must, in spite of the elder Mozart's misgivings on the subject, have been a liberal, appreciative patron, for the interminable leaves of absence, for artistic and commercial purposes, required by both father and son, were sufficient to try the patience of anyone less understanding. Leopold's chief merit to the world was the education of his son, for the sake of which he is said to have sacrificed all other opportunities as pedagogue. His talents in that direction were considerable, as his pioneer Violin Method, 1756, attests. It experienced several editions, also in translations, some even posthumous. His compositions, through the agency of which his great son first received the influence of Mannheim, were copious, but of mediocre value. Nevertheless, their formal correctness and sound musicianship were most salutary examples for the emulation of young Wolfgang. Leopold had the good sense to abandon composition as soon as he became aware of his son's genius, and to bend every effort to its development. The elder Mozart received the title of court composer and the post of Weisskapellmeister under Michael Haydn when the latter came to Salzburg. Michael Haydn's career in Salzburg was a most honorable one. It placed him in a state of dignity which, though eminently gratifying, was less calculated to rouse inspiration and ambition than the stormier career of his great brother. Notwithstanding this fact, he has left something like twenty-eight masses, two requiems, one hundred and fourteen graduals, sixty-six offertories, and much other miscellaneous church music, songs, choruses, the earliest four-part a cappella songs for men's voices, thirty symphonies not to be compared in value to his brothers, and numerous smaller instrumental pieces, but a peculiar form of modesty which made him averse to seeing his works in print confined his influence largely to local limits. It is a most fortunate fact that within these limits it fell upon so fertile a ground, for young Mozart was most keen in his observation of Haydn's work, appreciated its value, and received the first of those valuable lessons that the greater Joseph taught him in this roundabout fashion. End of section 5